That's 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. From the time that children begin to comprehend language, Christian parents are teaching them about the Bible. And we teach our children from very young ages that the Bible is special, that we, uh, that we respect it, that we trust it, that we live by it, that we do our best to obey it, that we read it. All those things are good things that we teach our children. But as our children get older and they begin to develop their capacity to reason and to ask questions, especially those why questions, at some point, they're probably thinking, and if they, if, if they don't literally ask you this, at least they're thinking it, why do we say all of those things about the Bible? Why do we read the Bible? Why should we trust it? Why should we respect it? Why are we supposed to live by it? And it's not necessarily that those questions are coming from rebellious hearts. I suppose in some cases they may be. They're not coming from rebellion necessarily, but through genuine inquisitiveness. And it's only good and right for everyone at some point to work themselves through those questions so that their faith in Scripture and in the God of Scripture becomes really their own and is not just something that has come from them or come from us to them and it's really our faith more than theirs. It needs to be theirs. Now certainly we are right as parents to try to instill faith within them and, and certainly they, um, you know, they tag along with us in those formative years as we're trying to help them create their own, but at some point it's got to become their own. And they need to believe these things because they understand them to be true and not just because, well, that's what my folks taught me, as important as that teaching is. So we're doing this series of lessons, and you know, we've been going through this uh, the past few Sunday nights, under the broad title or heading, When Your Children Ask. And you recall that we've called to mind Joshua chapter 4, where those words were spoken originally. That as the people of Israel went into the promised land and they created this stone monument uh, there in obedience to God's instructions, and it was a monument of remembrance. And that's what they were told. When your children ask in years to come, what do these stones mean? Then you tell them. Joshua 4 verse 21. So oftentimes because of our actions, because of the things that we do and the things that we say and that we teach, many times our children have questions. And naturally so. 
And so when our children ask us questions about the things that they see, the things that we do, things that are taught, and they ask, well, why do we do this? What does this mean? What's its significance? Why this and not that? Why that but not this? We need to be in a position to give them answers. And so that's why we're addressing some of these questions that we've been talking about the last few weeks. And tonight's question is, why do we believe the Bible? Why do we believe that it's the Word of God? Why do we believe that this book is not just a compilation of humanly created stories? Why do we think there's a connection between this and the being that we call God who's responsible for the creation of everything else? Why this book? Well, the short answer to that is that the Bible possesses characteristics that can only be explained when we bring divine inspiration into the explanation. All right, there's your short answer. Okay, the reason why we believe the Bible is that it has certain traits that leave us with no other alternative, no other reasonable alternative except that God is the one responsible for bringing it to us. Okay, so there's your short answer. Well, now then the next question is, well, all right, well what are the characteristics? <laughs> what are those traits? What is it about the Bible that leaves us no other alternative, reasonably speaking, than to accept divine inspiration? Well, before we look at uh, three of them tonight, I want to make sure that we understand a couple of things. Number one, this lesson is not designed to expound on and dig deeply into all of the characteristics that the Bible possesses that lead us to the conclusion that it must have come from God. I don't have time for that tonight. Uh, you, could spend, you could spend weeks, literally, just on that topic. The characteristics of Scripture that prove its inspiration. All right? My purpose is not to go into all that, though we certainly could, and, and we've done it in some of our adult classes in, uh, within the last couple of years, and, um, and there will be opportunities for that. My purpose tonight is to simply give uh, a brief overview of three areas of study that can strengthen our faith in the inspiration of Scripture. And basically to point you uh, as, as parents, even those of you that aren't parents, uh, to point us all to the information that's there and to talk about some of the general areas of study that we can engage in that will strengthen our faith in the inspiration of the Scriptures. Fair enough? Okay. Let's talk first of all about the unity of its message. One of the characteristics of Scripture that leaves us, again, no other reasonable alternative except the fact that God was in back of this book is the cohesiveness of its message from first page to last. And the reason why that is such an important thing is when you consider some of the Bible's characteristics, such as the fact that it was written by some 40 different individuals. 
40 different writers contributed to that one volume that we call the Bible. And those different writers came from practically every conceivable walk of life. There is so much diversity with regard to the, 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 the people responsible for writing the scriptures down that it amazes the, um, the thoughtful student to consider it. Examples? Nehemiah was a, uh, a cupbearer, a food taster in the palace of a king. Amos, the prophet, was uh, in horticulture. He was a keeper of sycamore trees and did some shepherding too. Peter, a common fisherman. Solomon, a king. Luke, a physician, a doctor. Matthew, tax collector for the Roman government. Moses, shepherd. Paul, tent maker. Now think about all that diversity. All levels of education, from those at the top like Luke, who was a very well-educated man, a physician, down to someone like, like Peter, that others would describe in Acts chapter 4, him and, and his compatriots as uneducated men. Well, they weren't. They weren't educated formally. They were fishermen. Tradesmen like Paul, tent maker, all of that. So you've got 40 different men coming from all different walks of life. The conditions in which these writers wrote were as varied as their occupations. David, for example, wrote many of the Psalms from the hillsides of Judea as he watched his father's sheep. Paul wrote some of his letters from a prison cell. These 40 different writers wrote in three languages. The Old Testament Hebrew, the New Testament Greek with small portions interspersed of a little Aramaic in there. Forty men, different education levels, different occupations, from all different walks of life, covering topics that ranged from history to geography to theology, of course, study of God, to eschatology, the, the study of, of final things, how things are going to wrap up in this world. They covered all of those topics and many more. And very few of those writers ever interacted with the others. Think about that historically. Very few of them interacted with each other. And they wrote over a period from the time that Moses began writing the book of Genesis until John finished the Revelation was about 1,600 years. 
Now, you put all of those characteristics together, 40 different writers, 1,600 years of time, different occupations, different education levels, so many different topics that are addressed in those writings, you would expect, given all of those characteristics, that this volume would be nothing more than a strange, incomprehensible conglomeration of unconnected and blatantly contradictory material. Now, the skeptic alleges that that's all the Bible is. But the truth of the matter is, from Genesis to Revelation, with all of those other characteristics in place, this volume has a single message. And that message is the salvation of lost souls through the person of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. That's it. You want to know what the Bible's about? That's it. From Genesis to Revelation, it's the salvation of lost souls through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. I've summarized it this way before in talking about the Bible. The Bible is about essentially, and you, 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 know, you can outline and divide the Bible up in, in different ways, but I like to do it this way just by way of summary. The Bible is about a problem, <clears throat> and that problem is sin. At the very earliest part of the book, the third chapter of Genesis, we're introduced to sin. As Adam and Eve transgressed God's law, and sin entered the world. And so the Bible's about a problem. The Bible's also about a person, and that person is Jesus. The one sent to deal with the problem. And again, Genesis chapter 3, we're given the, the earliest insight into the fact that someone is going to come one day and deal with this problem. Genesis 3.15. And in the third place, the Bible's about a plan. It's about a plan that involved the person who was coming to deal with the problem. And that plan is God's God's desire and his methodology for bringing about the salvation of sin through Jesus Christ. And so as, as Genesis moves on into Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and all throughout the Old Testament, the message is the Messiah is coming. From Genesis to Malachi throughout the Old Testament, that's the message. Jesus is coming. First part of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel accounts, tell us that Jesus came. And it tells us about his life. He was born into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, Galatians 4.4. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us insight into his life. Old Testament, Jesus is coming. Gospel accounts, he came. Book of Acts, through Revelation, Jesus is coming again. Acts 1.11, at the very beginning of the book of Acts, we're told that. As the disciples had watched Jesus ascend back to heaven, some men there in white apparel, angelic creatures of some kind, said to those disciples, appeared there and said, why, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus whom you have seen go into heaven will one day come again in a similar way that you've seen him go. Jesus is coming again. And how does the book of Revelation end? Even so, 
come, Lord Jesus. He's coming back. You take all of those characteristics of harmony and unity with everything else involved, the 40 different writers, the 1,600 years and all of that, the harmony and unity that the Scriptures reveal and portray defies mere human explanation. And I encourage you to dig deeper into the unified um, message of the Bible. It's one of the reasons why we believe that the Bible is from God. And we believe it for good reason. A second characteristic of the Scriptures that deserve uh, our time and attention that tell us that this, that this book could not have come from mere men, and that has to do with predictive prophecy. In other words, there are, there are places in this volume where individuals made predictions, prophecies, that came to pass just as they were predicted to come to pass. And the prophecies were of such a nature that they could not have been mere educated guesses. One of the things about prophecy that we need to remember is <clears throat> that in order for a prophecy to be genuine, there have to be some characteristics involved. There has to be a sufficient period of time uh, between the prophecy and the fulfillment that, that you know, guesswork uh, and, and reasonable analysis can be ruled out. It's cloudy out. Right? We've had a little rain already today, some thunder in the area. If I walked out right now and, and looked around and said, it's going to rain within the next hour. And if it rained, does that make me a prophet? Well, no. It makes me somebody that can look at the sky and, and reason correctly about what I'm seeing. So there has to be some distance of time. There also needs to be um, exact fulfillment. Of the details. Detail would be another thing, too, that's, that's a part of, of real genuine prophecy. Not vague generalities. It's not like what you pick up in magazines near the uh, end of every year, and you've got all these, these so-called prophecies that are they're supposed to come to pass in the next year. Gene Dixon was real famous for that in, in years gone by. Uh, but, you know, you see these, these prophecies, quote-unquote, that people give toward the end of the year, and they say things like, well, in, in the coming year... Uh, a, uh, a major world leader will die in office. Well, okay, probably so, right? I mean, there, there's, that, that's, that's no big step. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's a pretty good general statement that might come true. Give me his name and give me the day and give me the cause of death. Then we'll talk. Not vague generalities, specific details. And then, of course, exact fulfillment. 100% of the details, 100% of the time. The Bible said clearly, God's word, God, God was clear that if a prophet predicted something in the name of God and that prediction didn't come true, then you knew something right off the bat. You didn't have to study it anymore. You knew that that person was a false prophet because God doesn't give false information. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the future. He knows the past. He knows everything. So if somebody claims to be speaking for God and they say X is going to happen, but X doesn't happen, that person's a liar. Now you can go through the Scripture and you can look at hundreds of these predictions and their fulfillments. 
I want to call your attention to just one. 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13. We again, this is some, we could spend weeks just on fulfilled prophecy. 1 Kings 13 verses 1 and 2. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Here's the context. After Solomon's death, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, was the heir to the throne. And because of his, his actions and decisions, the kingdom divided, kingdom split into two kingdoms, southern kingdom of Judah, northern kingdom of Israel, ten tribes to the north, Judah and Benjamin to the south. Jeroboam the first, the son of Nebat, was the first king of the northern kingdom. Now, Jerusalem was located in the southern kingdom. And because Jeroboam was concerned that some of his subjects would go down into the southern kingdom to offer worship to God uh, at the temple in Jerusalem, he decided he would keep them in his northern section by building temples and altars to false gods in the northern kingdom. And Dan, the city of Dan, was one location in the north part of the northern kingdom. And then in the city of Bethel, in the southern part of the northern kingdom, was the other place. And here this is taking place in Bethel. And Jeroboam was standing beside an altar that he had made for sacrifices to be made to false gods. And this man of God, a prophet, comes out there, sent by God, and as, Je as Jeroboam is standing next to this altar, the prophet speaks. But did you notice he doesn't speak to Jeroboam? He speaks to the altar. Interesting. And he says, oh, altar, altar. Guess what's going to happen to you? And the prophet said, one of these days, a man from the family of David will come, and his name will be Josiah. And he's going to come to you, altar, and he's going to burn the bones of those who sacrifice to false gods on you. And he's going to burn their bones on top of you. That's pretty specific, isn't it? The prophecy was fulfilled in perfect detail. We can read about that. If we had time, I'll give you the reference. 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 15 through 20. 2 Kings 23, fifteen through 20. And if you'll read those verses, you'll see that a man named Josiah becomes king over the southern kingdom of Judah. 
And he goes to Bethel. Because he's making a great restoration of God's law, bringing people back to the law of God and away from these false idols. He goes to that very altar. And the false priests, the priests of the false gods, who had been buried near there, Josiah says, dig them up and burn their bones on this altar. And they do. Do you know how long it was between the time the prophecy was made and it was fulfilled? 300 years. 300 years. Now, can you tell me, how does an individual know 300 years into the future that somebody is going to be born of the family of David that's going to be named Josiah, and that person is going to grow up to be king over God's people and come back to this location and burn bones of false prophets on it? How does all of that happen? How, do, how are the bones there? Why are the bones there? How do the people know where the bones are? Why wasn't the altar destroyed in that 300-year period of time? Who knew to name their baby Josiah? Hey, think about all of that. That's not guesswork. That's not getting lucky. There's no other explanation for that prophecy and its fulfillment than the fact that God spoke to that prophet and gave him that information. And that's just one of hundreds that you can read about in your own Bible. What about all the Messianic prophecies? Some 200 of them. Born of a virgin, fulfilled. Come through the descendancy of Abraham, fulfilled. Of the tribe of Judah, fulfilled. That he would suffer and die on behalf of others, fulfilled. That his body would not decay in the tomb, but would be raised from the dead, fulfilled. There's no way to explain the detailed and precisely fulfilled future predictions in Scripture except by the direction of God. That's why we believe the Bible's from Him. Because of fulfilled prophecy. One more. The accuracy of the Bible's claims. The accuracy of the Bible's claims. I want to talk for just a couple of minutes about the book of Acts just by itself. Forget every other book in the Bible for just a moment. Think about one book, the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, Luke, the author of it, mentions 32 different countries by name. He mentions 54 cities. He mentions nine Mediterranean islands. He calls the names of 95 different people, 62 of which are not mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament, and 27 of which are unbelievers, usually civil leaders or, or military officials of some kind. When Luke, the writer, inspired of the Holy Spirit, of course, but when he writes down that kind of detail, names of countries, this place is located here, they went from here to there, people, many of them unbelievers, calling them by name, 
different geographical location, islands and all that. What It's as if Luke, as he's writing that down, is begging for somebody to check him out. Check me out on this, Luke says. I'm going to give you names. I'm going to give you locations. I'm going to tell you the names of people that you can go and, and, and ask them if what I'm telling you is the truth. Of course, the original people who would have received that, that letter would have been in a position to do that. We certainly aren't, just by means of time. But all of that information... All of that detail give, gave not only those in historical proximity to Luke and his writings the ability to go check him out on stuff, but it also has given archaeologists in years since then the opportunity to check things out too. And archaeological discoveries have yet to discredit anything not just in the book of Acts, but in the rest of the Bible combined. There has not yet been one archaeological discovery that has discounted anything that Scripture has affirmed as true. To err is human. Isn't that the old saying? Human beings make mistakes. We just do. It's, it's, just a, it's just a part of who we are. No matter how hard we try, no matter how accurate we try to be, humans make mistakes. Where are the mistakes here? Why, why has nothing been discovered to date that says, ah, the Bible says this, but here's the truth. I know skeptics believe they found them, but the skeptics have been answered. Not my purpose, again, to go through and do all of that, but just to point you, hopefully, in the right direction. There is no text of ancient or modern history that has been as scrutinized as severely as the Bible has been. No question. There, there, it's, it's not even close. The level of scrutiny that the Bible has been placed under. And yet... No ancient or modern text is better documented than the biblical text. Now each of these points, as I mentioned before, can be and should be fleshed out even more in your personal private study. It wasn't my purpose to do that tonight, but to point parents and others in the right direction for answers and for further study. And I would just put in a plug right here, and I'm thankful that we support Apologetics Press here at Graber Road. and we, we help financially for them to do the work that they do. They have done an immeasurable amount of good in answering the skeptics, in, in putting their charges to the test, and in showing the evidence that's there that God exists, that the Bible is indeed His Word. And so if you want to peruse some of that material Please do it. Go to their website, apologeticspress.org, and search for the inspiration of the Bible. And you'll find material there that will strengthen your faith and help you to better understand and appreciate the inspiration of the Bible. So when your children ask, why do we believe the Bible? 
take them to the information. Don't just say, well, because that's what I was always taught. That's not good enough. Take them to the evidence so that they can see it for themselves. The Bible is indeed the Word of God. Inspired of God, profitable, as the passage says, for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. The man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Are you following God's message? If you're not, there's no reason to wait. There's no reason to, to, uh, you know, to delay obedience. Now is the accepted time, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. If you need to get your life right with God, do it tonight. Start allowing this divinely inspired book to guide your every step. If we may help you to obey the gospel tonight, to be added to the body of Christ by being immersed in water, or if we may help you as one who's already a Christian to be stronger, to be more faithful, to pray with you and for you, let us know what your need is as we stand together and sing.